uh, since I've been here. So it's good to be back with you. And uh, we are going to be looking at Luke 21 today, Luke chapter 21. But before we dive into the scriptures, let's begin with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we continually come before you with thanksgiving and praise for the tremendous gift of your Son, Jesus, our Savior, for his life and death and resurrection once again, for the fact that uh, by your grace, through faith in him, our sins are completely removed from us, and we have everlasting life in your presence before us. We ask your Holy Spirit's uh, presence and blessing this day as we continue our study of your word, especially as it pertains to your Son during Holy Week. And we pray your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Remember, way back, uh, we looked at the pivotal verse in the Gospel of Luke, which is Luke chapter 9, verse 51, where Luke records that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. And from that point on, we've been traveling with him uh, on the way to the cross, literally, and uh, eventually the open tomb, of course. And uh, today we are in the midst of it. He is in Jerusalem. Uh, their scholars seem to have a little bit of a, not disagreement, but they differ uh, as to exactly what day this is. Some say it's late in the day on Tuesdays. Others will say, others will say it's on Wednesday. But suffice it to say that the pattern has set up. He has come into Jerusalem, we know, on Palm Sunday, riding in triumphantly, and we, we know that story, that account well. Um, right at the end of Sunday, uh, we read, I believe it's in Luke, that he went and looked into the temple grounds and probably did not like what he saw, but Luke records how it was late in the day, and so he left. Monday comes back, and there's where we believe the cleansing of the temple happened, and then some teaching, and then Tuesday and Wednesday more teaching and rising opposition as well, leading, of course, to what we know happened on Thursday. He celebrates uh, the Passover meal with his disciples, uh, completely transforms that uh, into a wonderful blessing that we have still with us today, the Lord's Supper, and then, of course, goes out to the Mount of Olives, is betrayed by Judas, arrested, and, and goes on, uh, ending up on the cross, of course, from about 9 a.m. on Friday till about 3 p.m. on Friday. They're suffering and dying uh, in our place and for our sins. So we are getting to that point now, and whether it's Tuesday night or Wednesday, he is in the temple, and he is teaching. And that's where he seemed to be most of the time uh, during the days preceding his death, is in the temple and teaching. So... Just to review for a moment, uh, you, you left off, I wasn't in here last Sunday, but you left off uh, with chapter 20, and there's going to be quite a contrast that's going to happen as we begin chapter 21. If we look at the last portion of chapter 20, remember the warning, uh, or the admonition, I guess you'd say, that Jesus gave. Uh, I'm going to start with verse 45 of chapter 20. And in the hearing of all the people, so he had a lot of people around him that were coming to listen to him teach. In the hearing of all the people, he said, now specifically to his disciples, but others could hear, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplace and the best seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses 
and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. Not commendation, but condemnation, right? Let's just stop for a moment. What goes through your mind when you hear the description of the scribes, the so-called, uh, one of the groups that are so-called religious uh, leaders, authorities of the day, they were the ones who uh, copied the scrolls, for example, from one to another, and in so doing, that's what they dedicated their lives to, in so doing, they became so familiar with God's word that they were sought out as authorities in God's word, but uh, as you read what Jesus says here, you get the picture of humble servants of God who are mere, there merely to, to serve him and sacrifice in his service. Is that kind of the, the flavor that you get as you read those words? No. Just the opposite, right? It, it's almost like they're on display. And they, they are there to be served. They are there, as he says, they, they walk along in, in long robes to be noticed, I, I'm guessing, by everyone in the marketplaces. And uh, do they take the lower spots in the synagogues, the lower seats, the less, less prominent seats? Just the opposite, right? They want the best seats in the synagogue, right? Like the green seats down at Bush Stadium, they, they, they get the best, the best seats. And, uh, and, and notice there are the places of honor at all the feasts. So they were pretty impressed with themselves. And uh, Jesus, notice what he says there, that they will receive the greater condemnation because of their arrogance and ultimately, of course, by their rejection of him. But this, this arrogance instead of hu humble service before God. Now we're going to contrast that with a widow. At, in start of chapter 21, and we think that this, this followed right on Jesus saying this, that, um, that it says there Jesus looked up, and so we think this followed right on what he just said about these very arrogant and pompous scribes. Here comes this widow, and we're going to see what she does and what Jesus says about it. Okay, So first part of 21, starting at verse 1 here, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. So let's stop and talk about this for a moment. Quite a contrast, isn't it, to what Jesus was just saying. So you've got two groups here. First of all, he, he uh, as, as Luke puts it, the rich or the very affluent. Um, and uh, they're coming and putting their gifts into the offering box. Now this offering box, uh, we think, was in the Mishnah, which is the commentary on the, on the, uh, on the law, God's law, there was what was called a, a temple of secrets, and this was a box that we believe was used to help give alms to the poor. Okay? So it was there, it was publicly out there. People could come and, and give an offering and leave an offering. And I don't know what to compare it to here at St. Paul's, except that we have, throughout the entire course of the year, have drives for just about everything, right? Uh, June is diaper month here, and, and just about every month, and that's a good thing. I'm not, I'm not 
not criticizing that. That's a great thing, actually. But anyway, people are coming by. This was just a standard box that would be there. And uh, for all that we would say about them, the Jews were pretty good, actually, we think, at helping the poor, at giving alms for the poor. You remember in the book of Acts that the Greeks come and they're complaining that their widows are being shortchanged in the offering that's given. And that's when we get uh, Stephen and the others set aside uh, to serve. But at any rate, this is that box. And it's used again to help the poor. Uh, and, and it was actually um, given to the poor kind of in secret, behind, behind the scenes, uh, so as not to embarrass them or shame them. And so this is the box that we're talking about. So he, he looks and sees the rich coming, and here comes a widow, and she puts in two small copper coins. Now, traditionally, and I should say this is great timing for this, because the Lutheran Women's Missionary League is having their convention as we speak in Milwaukee uh, right now. And LWML is famous for the collection of mites. Yes. And usually this is sometimes referred to as the widow's mite. Okay. In Greek, it's actually lepta, L-E-P-T-A, if I would transliterate it. And it is the smallest of the coins that were in existence at that time. You remember probably hearing at some point or another that a denarius was the amount of money that you got at that time for working a day. So in other words, a, a, the wage that was given for a day's work. You know how much work a lepta paid for? Six minutes. Six minutes of work. So that's the comparison it has with a denarius. So she puts in two, so about 12 minutes worth of work is the equivalent in terms of, of value, okay? It's always tricky to try to say, well, what would that be in dollars? Well, you know, that, that's kind of a hard thing to determine. What's, what is a day's work today? It really varies quite a bit. But back at that time, that's what it was, okay? And notice the reaction that Jesus has here. He says, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. Now, is Jesus there talking about, what, what's the thing, what's the, I guess you'd say, the, the bottom line here? Have, has she actually put in more in amount, raw amount of, of, uh, of value? Probably, I hope not. <laughs> the others, I think we're assuming that the rich are putting in a lot. Okay? And that's not a bad thing. But notice there, what is Jesus pointing to? Not the raw amount that goes in, in terms of the, the currency's value, but what is he actually pointing to? Her heart, yes. That he says there, she gave, notice there, all she had to live on, literally, in modern parlance, her last dime, okay? She puts in. And notice, isn't that ironic, that she herself would be probably poor, and she's, she's putting in this box to help the poor, okay? Widows at that time were very vulnerable, uh, legally speaking, and we're gonna see later on uh, how Jesus chides the leaders for getting, uh, devouring the houses uh, of the widows. Uh, we'll get to that in just a minute. But in the, in the legal system of that time, 
widows, especially if they did not have a son, uh, were vulnerable in society and often were preyed upon by unscrupulous people. And that's why um, when Jesus raises the widow's son at Nain, there's, it is, she is described as one who it was a widow and had no other son, or was her only son, which in the mind of a Jew back at that time would say, aha, uh-huh, she's a very, in a very vulnerable situation. Okay? So she gives here of all that she had, and notice there, out of her poverty has put in all she had to live on. Okay? So let's try to make this modern day. Is Jesus more pleased, necessarily, with the gifts of millionaires, because it's more raw dollars, than he is with the poor person who puts in a very small amount? Is God more pleased with the gifts of the, the millionaire, necessarily? <laughs> Now, uh, so what, what is it that actually pleased Jesus here or caused him to, to comment? It's not the raw amount, but it's the, yeah, the, the sort of, you might say the percentage or the, the amount in relationship to what she had, okay? And notice there, we normally call this in, uh, in stewardship terms, sacrificial giving, Right? Giving that causes us to make a sacrifice of some sort in our lives. And versus giving at a level that doesn't even make a dent whatsoever. And I found this quote, it was in the footnotes of uh, one of the commentaries. There was a, uh, well he is, a, still, a scholar named Fitzmeyer, who I'm going to read this a couple times because it might take a couple times to sink in. But listen to what he says. The true measure of gifts is not how much is given, but how much remains behind, or the percentage of one's means, in other words, the cost to the giver. So it's not so much the gift itself, but how much stays behind. In other words, uh, again, the percentage of what is given. Now, do we as Lutherans today, do we prescribe that you're supposed to give a certain percentage? No. Uh, Old Testament, often the the, uh, amount uh, suggested was what? Tithe, yeah. And we say that we simply, we're not bound by Old Testament uh, ceremonial laws, and we give simply what? In relation to how God has blessed us. For some that might be a certain amount, and others quite a different amount. But anyway, that's how we today, so you won't hear us uh, like you will some uh, people, uh, saying you've got to give at least at this amount or, you know, or suggesting even an amount for you. We believe that's a private thing uh, between God and each individual. Okay? But we talk about uh, not equal giving in terms of amounts, which wouldn't be, but equal sacrifice or sacrificial giving across the board. Okay? And again, that's up, we, we believe, up to each individual uh, in their relationship with God to determine. Okay? All right, let me stop here before we go. We're going to launch into a long section here where Jesus is going to be talking about the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem, and finally, the second coming uh, of, of him.
So but let me stop first. Any comments or any questions in this first section dealing with the widow and Jesus pointing out uh, her uh, giving from her poverty in such a generous way? Yes? Mm-hmm. Think of the rich with this big bag of coins. Right. Right. Yeah. And it comes right after this condemnation of Christ. And so Jesus may not have been looking in that direction, but have heard it. Right. Because it was so loud. Yeah. And yet these small little coins would have made it Yeah. That's a that's an excellent point. Uh, and you wonder, because it follows right on the, the section with the scribes here being uh, brought down a peg or two, whether, again, they were these people, the rich, were giving, again, as a big show. Uh, it doesn't say it that way, but it simply says they came and gave out of their abundance. And it doesn't certainly say sacrificial. But yeah, the, the, the contrast, you can't miss the contrast, right? Between, uh, the, again, the great amount and the small amount the maybe small amount in terms of percentage and the incredible percentage that, that the uh, widow offers. Okay, good, good, great point. Any others? Comments, questions? Yes, Ruth? Yes. Yes, excellent comment. Ruth's comment was it's, it's that underlying trust in God, right? That, that uh, moved her and, and made her comfortable in doing that. So what do we pray? We prayed it, for those of you who were at the 8 o'clock, we prayed it. Give us this day what? Our daily bread, right? And so we're doing that with a couple, re- uh, a couple things come from that, don't they? We assume that God will give us each day our daily bread, right? Not just today, but on into the future as well. And we're also recognizing that what I receive today comes from the gracious hand of God and not from my own devices and, and, and so on. It all comes to us. Uh, uh, we look at Luther's explanation of the first article. There's a laundry list of things, right? And the explanation that, that he reminds us comes from God, not, not from us. So yeah, it's a great point. It's our trust that she is able, that he will provide for her going forward. Okay, good comments. Any others? All right, let's go on now then, and we want to start um, looking at, as I said, this section. First of all, it's going to kind of start smaller with the destruction of the temple, but then it's going to go out to the destruction of Jerusalem, then finally the second coming of Christ. So it starts off and kind of gets wider and wider and wider as we go through. So let me read first, and then we will go back and uh, pick up. So we're going to look at through verse 9 here. So, and while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he. The time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. 
For these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. All right, so let's go back uh, again and see. So they're in the temple grounds here again. Remember, Jesus has been teaching, and he has seen the, 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 this offering uh, take place. And in the other Gospels, uh, it looks like it's the disciples that are commenting on how grand the temple is. Now, let's go back and think for a moment uh, and review a little bit of history here. In the Old Testament, there's no question, Solomon's temple was incredible by all accounts in the scriptures. You look at the, the gold and, you know, just, just the uh, opulence, I guess you would say, of, of the Solomon's temple. Now, that temple, of course, was done away with when the Babylonians came. No more temple left and completely leveled, okay? And so then after the Babylonian captivity... Uh, the Jews come back, there are uh, some expeditions that come back, and they're rebuilding the temple. Now, remember, uh, was, was the second temple then, the rebuilt one, was it kind of as good as the first one, or maybe even uh, was Temple 2.0 even better than, than Temple 1.0? You remember the reaction? We won't take the time to read it here, but it's in Ezra chapter 4, and the people are there at the dedication of that temple. And what are some of them doing? They're weeping at, because they remembered the former one, and this one is only a shadow of that former one. Can you imagine when we had the, we had the, uh, the dedication of the new school here, and if we had people crying out there because it was so sad in their eyes? I mean, not what you want to have happen at a dedication, right? And it would have been kind of a downer of the day. But then... Uh, going further on, Herod the Great starts a great improvement campaign and makes the temple much more grand than it was before. And there are these massive stones. Uh, for those of us who have been to Israel, one of the questions I always come away with is how in the world did they, without huge cranes and so on, they did all this. And if you go to the Wailing Wall today, you will see these huge stones that are at the base or the foundation. Uh, similar, uh, in fact may even be, but at least similar to the huge stones that Herod the Great brought in. And so what you're looking at is a part of the foundation there. It is not the Holy of Holies. It is not, it is not what the people had at first. It's what Herod added on. Okay? And so it was, indeed, after Herod was done, quite magnificent, okay? And so they are in awe, the disciples and the people around are in awe of this place. I, it might be similar if you go, I was trying to think of, for example, the National Cathedral in, in Washington, D.C., for those of you who have been there, or another very impressive, well, we have right here in St. Louis, I shouldn't, we don't even have to leave here, do we? Uh, the Basilica with all the beautiful uh, mosaic tiles, some of the best displays of mosaic tiles in the world. And it's easy to stand there if you're inside and just be at awe as you look up at the ceiling. And this is kind of the way they were. They're looking at the massive uh, grandeur of this temple. And Jesus shocks them and points ahead. And notice what he says there. Um, 
As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now, when he says this, what do their minds automatically probably go back to? Their forefathers and what happened in the Babylonian, right before the Babylonian captivity, right? And this is going to come true. There, I won't spend a lot of time on this, but there was. You may have heard of it uh, as, it's got a couple of names. It goes by uh, the Great Jewish Revolt, or the First Jewish Revolt, 66 to 73 A.D. And it started about 12 years into Nero's reign as emperor. And uh, we won't go into Nero either, but uh, uh, just a guy way off in terms of, uh, in fact, it seems to have gotten worse and worse in terms of his own stability, uh, mental stability. And uh, anyway, things kept getting worse. The gap between the haves and have-nots continued to grow. Uh, there was a tax revolt that God's people established because the taxes kept going up and up and up, and they just flat out refused. And finally, the Romans had had enough and came in. And 67 AD is when Galilee up to the north uh, fell to the Romans. And they continued south to Jerusalem and encircled Jerusalem. And uh, there are some reports that some really gruesome things happened uh, as God's people were surrounded and besieged. And then finally, in 70 AD, uh, Jerusalem is destroyed and the temple is destroyed as well. And finally, for those of you that have been there, uh, the last remnant of the Jews, uh, at least from Jerusalem, fled south and ended up at Masada. Masada. And that actually was a place that was built by Herod the Great, but the Jews end up there and there's a big story about how the Romans then pursued them and actually built a land roadway up to the walls of Masada, breached it, and then there's the, then there's the controversy about what really happened there or not. Whether the, there was a mass suicide, which was the first story that the Jews had, that all the Jews killed themselves rather than um, falling into the, you know, the punishment of the Romans, would give them, or, here's the second story, that there were actually people designated to go around and kill all of the Jews. And uh, when we were there, we learned that that Masada used to be the place where all military officers who were going to serve in the Israeli army would go to take their oath of allegiance. And when that second story started surfacing, they stopped doing that. They don't do that any longer there. Okay? But it's quite a sight. If you ever have the opportunity to go there, uh, it is quite a sight. So that's the period that Jesus is foretelling here, is going to come. So it's going to be uh, less than 40 years uh, from the time he is talking right now to them, or roughly 40 years, when all this is going to take place. Okay? So notice there, they asked, I found it kind of interesting, they ask him, uh, let's see, it's in verse 7, they don't ask him for plural signs, they ask him for a singular sign. What's the sign going to be that all this is going to happen? And notice, before Jesus starts listing sign or signs, he first 
talks to them uh, about warnings for them and their own spiritual life and their own, their own uh, spiritual welfare before he starts talking about these signs. Verse 8, see that you are not led astray. Notice there are many will come, notice in my name, they're going to come in his name, saying, I am he. Now, what, uh, what should our antenna go up when we hear, what words do our antenna go up? Saying what? I am he, right? I am, the Old Testament name for Yahweh, uh, Elohim, I am who I am, right? And so many will come and will say, I am he, and notice the time is at hand. And there we believe there is a specific uh, set-aside, established time for the second coming known only to the Father. But many are going to come, and they're going to obviously be imposters, saying that they are, they are he, and the time is come. Do not go after them, or we can translate that, do not journey after them. Do not get along on a journey with them, because you will be misled. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. So it almost sounds, he says there these things must take place. There's sort of a, a divine necessity here. That these things have to happen. But don't worry, the end is not yet here. Okay? So when the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem take place, it's as if Jesus is saying, do not fear, the end is, this is not the end. Okay? But on the other hand, think of the impact that that is going to have on the Jews. When the temple is destroyed, again, and when Jerusalem is destroyed. Throughout the Old Testament and into the New, where the Jews believe, and with good reason, that the presence of God was. At least where he promised it would be. In the temple. And the Ark of the Covenant uh, in former days in the Old Testament and so on. Um, and when... Um, uh, Jesus is, is uh, crucified uh, on the cross. What splits apart? The curtain between the holy and most holy place, right? So think of that now. That is all wiped out. Jerusalem, the holy city, is wiped out. And the Jews would be lower than low, thinking, I, I don't know what we could compare that to today, if it were gone, that, that we would feel that defeated and that low. But he says, don't fear. It's not the end yet. Don't fear. Okay, so stay calm <laughs> at this time. All right, now he's going to tell them about signs. Notice they ask for a sign. He first tells them, uh, out of concern for their spiritual welfare, don't go after false Christ saying that I am he. Now he's going to tell them about the signs. So, verse 10. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, 
delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. And let's just stop there for a second, okay? So first of all, we see he gives them a, a number of signs, not just one sign, they only ask for one, but he gives them a number of signs. Let's go back and tick these off. Nation will rise up against nation, including right in their own backyard, right, with the Romans coming uh, and eventually laying siege to Jerusalem. So, and, and we see that and have seen that ever since, and kingdom against kingdom. Verse 11. Uh, great earthquakes. So the, the upheaval is not only going to be amongst people, but creation itself. And we, and we still see that today, don't we? So these are kind of precursors for the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem, but they also point ahead, don't they, to the ultimate uh, destruction of the old world order here when Christ returns. And notice there, uh, going on, uh, there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. So even, the, again, the cosmic, and we're going to read this a little bit later coming up again, but even cosmic, uh, heavenly uh, upheaval. And notice there, if you thought things were going to get better, notice in verse 12, what's going to happen to them? They will be persecuted. And simply for, and he says, in my, for my name's sake, they will be persecuted. And they will, people will lay hands on them. And notice there, they will be uh, delivered. And by the way, that, that word for delivering up is actually uh, translated betrayal also. It's the same word that is used for uh, Judas's betrayal of Jesus, handing him up or handing him over, that people will be betrayed. And notice there, they'll deliver them up uh, to uh, kings and governors, for my name's sake. Uh, I want to go back to synagogues and prisons. So synagogues, who are they going to be betrayed to there? Who, who hangs out in the synagogues? Jews. And what about in the... Uh, uh, in the uh, prisons, who's going who's gonna to be ruling there? The Gentiles or the Romans. So the early Christians were catching persecution from both sides, weren't they? First of all, the Jews were persecuting them. And why were the Jews persecuting these Christians? Same reason Paul was at first, right, when he was Saul, going after Christians, arresting them, bringing them in, uh, thinking that this Jesus is a fraud who is actually leading people away from God, not to him. And so they actually feel they're doing God's work. They're doing God's will by persecuting Christians. And then as time goes on, why are the Romans upset and persecuting the Christians? The Romans want the Christians to worship the emperor, right? And that's a growing uh, thing as time goes on. And Christians, of course, most of them, uh, would refuse to do so, would absolutely refuse to do so. And by, by refusing to do so, would put their own lives in jeopardy. Uh, the Romans wanted you to have a statue, a little uh, icon of the emperor in your home, and bow down and worship it. 
and Christians refused. Just like, just like Daniel in the Old Testament, right? Refused to bow down. Okay? And so, you think about this, they, this really does happen uh, after Jesus is ascended. We see what happens in the book of Acts, where Christians, uh, you know, Paul's in, uh, Paul and Silas are in prison at Philippi, for example, and then he's brought before a leader. And all the way through the book of Acts, we see that playing out. And eventually, we don't have it uh, recorded, but we, we have Peter and Paul both being put to death, uh, executed. Uh, we believe it's somewhere around the spring of 68 AD, uh, outside of Rome. And Peter, remember, is the one who said, I am not worthy to die in the same manner as my Lord and request to be crucified upside down. So if you ever go into a church and see a stained glass window with an upside down cross and maybe even a, a body on that cross, that's depicting the Apostle Peter. And Paul, we believe, again, also very close to that same time outside of the city of Rome. And actually, uh, this again is outside of Scripture, but the Christian tradition is that all but one of the apostles died as a martyr because of their faith, as Jesus put it here, for his name's sake. All they would have had to do is deny the faith, and the persecution would go away, and they would, and Jesus is going to mention this later, save their life in terms of not being executed there right away. Okay? And uh, by the way, I have always thought that this is one of the strongest um, defenses, not defenses, but um, strongest uh, supports for the resurrection of Christ. Take away everything that's in the Gospels, if you don't believe it, but do you really think that 11 of the, well, actually 10 of the 11 of these guys would actually put their own life on the line and die for something that they knew was a sham or was some kind of a hoax? Of course not. And so even just logically speaking, the resurrection, how else can you explain that these guys would give of their very life rather than deny their Savior, the risen Christ? That's, that's the answer. So, and by the way, who's the one that we think did not uh, die a martyr, or at least seems, in, historically speaking? John. Yeah, the Apostle John, who, uh, remember from the cross, Jesus says, Behold your son to Mary, and, and to John, behold your mother. And historically, again, uh, the, the tradition says that John did exactly that, that he and Mary uh, ended, uh, lived in Ephesus, and he cared for her uh, through the end uh, of his years. If you go to Ephesus today, they'll want to take you to that house. Uh, I always say to people, no, I don't think so. Uh, use your time better. And uh, now I'm not denying that they were there, but not the house they'll show you there. So anyway. Uh, anyway, so notice there, and by the way, in Greek, the, uh, the, the word for witness is martyreo. To witness is martyreo. And Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. This is the opportunity for you to bear witness. Martyreo is the word, uh, Greek uh, stem from where we get martyr, right? One who gives witness to their faith by actually dying, giving their life for that, for that faith rather than to deny it. 
Um, all right, let's stop right there. We'll stop through verse 13. Any questions, comments? All right, let's go on. Verse 14. And notice this is going to be a great comfort to, the, to the, uh, his, his disciples. Uh, settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. So what's he telling them there? Don't, don't fret, don't worry about what you're going to say when you're hauled before, as he says there, the synagogues and the prisons. Don't worry about what you're going to say. I will give you the words. Okay? And your enemies, your adversaries, uh, are not going to be able, none of them are going to be able to withstand uh, or contradict. Now, this next part, think of how sad this is. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives Friends, and some of you, they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. And going back to that first part, uh, hard for us to imagine, isn't it, that family members would deliver up family members would turn on, you know, he, as he says there, you will be delivered by parents. Parents actually delivering their children up as Christians to be persecuted, and relatives and friends. The only thing that I could think of historically that kind of maybe is a little similar is back in Hitler's day, right? When family members were turning in family members and thought they were doing something good when they did it, okay? But here's the same kind of thing. I, I can't imagine doing that. I can't imagine turning in my son for being a Christian, right? But that's how sad and how, how deep those divisions uh, would result in, and would be. Okay, brothers and relatives. Then he goes there uh, that you will be hated for my name's sake. Again, the, the contempt that the world will have for his followers. And in another place, Jesus tells his disciples, the world will hate you because it has hated me. Right? We are the ones who bear his name. He places his name on us in baptism. And we bear that name, and just as they hated him, they will hate some, certainly will hate us uh, as well. But, not a head of your hair will perish or will cease to exist. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Now, the word for li li lives, <laughs> life, is there the same word in Greek that's used for soul. It's the word, it's the word suxe in Greek, and you will gain your souls. There's another spot, we won't look at it right now, but there's another spot in Luke 9, verse 24, and this is the one, whoever, Jesus says, whoever wishes to save his life, his suxe, will lose it. And whoever loses his life, suxe, on account of me, this one will save it. So, 
if you're trying to save your life, let's just, what does he mean by this? If you're trying to save your life, what are you doing? You're probably, are you going to continue saying you're a Christian? No, you're going to deny the faith so that you can save your life, right? At that, at that particular moment in time. And what does Jesus say about someone who's going to try to save their life? In the end, they will what? Lose it. And then the opposite, he turns it around. The one who loses his life by what? Continuing to say, yes, I am one of his, will eventually do what? Will gain their life, okay? So, again, we have never, obviously, any of us, been in that kind of a situation, and we hope and pray that that kind of persecution does not come to us, but there are definitely still places in this earth where people face that exact uh, dilemma. And do they renounce their Savior and save their life? And boy, aren't there great rationalizations you can make, right? I could say, well, gee, as a father, you know, I need to, I need to be here for my children, or, or as a husband, I need to be here for my wife. There are great rationalizations that Satan can send through your head at that time, right? And think of how many of our forefathers down through the years have, have said, I will not deny my Lord, and have faced execution instead of doing so, right? So anyway, it's something that is quite stark. And Jesus predicts that this is going to happen. He sets them up, and they know what is going to be coming. This is not going to be uh, a, a great time of merriment uh, going forward for them. Okay? All right, let me stop there before we launch into the next section. Anything uh, occurring to you there? Or do you want to, uh, questions or comments? Ruth? Okay. Mm. Okay, okay. Right. Right. Right, right. Yeah, so why don't we talk about uh, Ruth's point was that, uh, I think, let me, let me know if I'm paraphrasing you right, but that we're not facing that kind of physical, you know, the threat of death right now, but certainly we as Christians in our culture and our society, there is a, what would you call it, a soft persecution or a, you know, a, a persecution in the sense of, of, of um, the views and the, the, uh, what's put forth in, in culture versus a biblical understanding. Is that what you were? Blatantly. Okay. All right. Yeah. Right, and, and we see, we have seen that. Unfortunately, it's nothing new. It, at very least, we're sort of dismissed, you know, as if our voice is, is just archaic and we don't have anything to contribute any longer. Uh, but at, at even more serious than that, we can be attacked and accused of, of being uh, haters. And, uh, you know, all, there's a laundry list of things. I, I don't, you guys know this, it's nothing, nothing new. So the, the opposition between culture and the Christian faith, you know, goes all the way back to here uh, in, our, in our gospel lesson from, from Luke 21, but it continues to this day. 
And, you know, I've often wondered, if you've ever wondered this, you know, uh, what's the world going to be like for my grandchildren, you know, who are uh, 13 and 11 right now? And, and what is it going to be for them as Christians, even just 20, 25 years from now, what's it going to be like for them? And what's it going to be like for the Christian church here in this country? So we continue to pray. We continue to proclaim exactly what God's word says. And knowing that it might not be always the popular thing uh, to teach and to confess, but that's what we have been given to teach and confess, not, not something other than that. Okay? So, but uh, again, this is nothing new. It goes all the way back to, in this case, Luke 21. Okay? Good comment. Any others? All right, let's finish up. Um, we'll go down uh, to... Now, now we're going to look at the destruction of Jerusalem. So we've gone out from the temple. We're going to now look at the destruction of Jerusalem. Okay? So, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, and that's going to be coming up, as I said, in less than 40 years, uh, General Titus of the Roman army is going to lead the besiegement of Jerusalem. Then know that its desolation has come near. So it's not going to be spared. 21. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. So there are three things here that Jesus directs them for when this is happening. So if you're in Judea, which is the, is the territory in which Jerusalem exists, what does Jesus say you should do? flee to the mountains. Now, isn't it normally the case that a city is a place of refuge? And if you're out in the wilderness, you come into the city to be safe? Not the case here, because Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. Flee to the mountains. And let those who are in the city, what? Depart. Get out of there. And notice then, finally, uh, and those who are out in the country, don't, what? Don't come to Jerusalem. So it's, it's the idea here of avoid Jerusalem at all costs, because it is going down. Okay? For, those, for these are days of vengeance. In other words, God's vengeance, God's judgment, um, to fulfill all that is written. And look at the next section. Also for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. Jesus takes two things there that normally are things of great joy, aren't they? The birth of a child and the nursing of infants. Normally those are things that bring great joy, but not in this case. Because, again, of what is happening, going to happen right around them. And... Again, a wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. Oh, how this would sound to Jewish ears. By the Gentiles, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So again, you get the idea. What's the time of the Gentiles going to be? Eventually here, it's going to include the Gentiles in the church post-Pentecost. 
And until that time is fulfilled, then he will come. Okay? So the time of the Gentiles, and for the Jews to hear this, would have just set them on edge. But this is exactly what's going to happen. They who rejected the Messiah, rejected the, the one that God had sent, now it's going to be taken from them and given to the Gentiles, right? You remember the parable that Jesus told about the wicked tenants. And he gives, the, the, the owner of the vineyard gives the vineyard over to wicked tenants. And he sends workers one by one to get the crop, to get the harvest. And do the, do the wicked tenants turn over the, the crops back to them? No. They send, they send the workers out. In fact, in one case, they end up killing them. Then the owner of the vineyard says, I will send whom? I will send my son. Certainly they will listen to my son. And what, do, what does Jesus in the parable say they, that these workers do to the son? They kill him. And then Jesus turns to them and says to the one standing around, so what do you think the owner of the vineyard is going to do uh, when he comes? He'll take that vineyard from them and give it to those who are producing the, the fruit. And they condemn themselves in saying that, right? That God is going to take the vineyard. Vineyard is kingdom of God. Vineyard is church. Take it from them and give it to those who are bearing fruit. Namely, it will be the Gentiles. And this will happen until the time of the Gentiles is done. And it makes it sound, doesn't it, like it is a specific time, an appointed time, that's going to come. And when that time comes, then it's over. Okay, but not until then. All right? Um, we're getting out of time here, but there are a number, there are a couple places I was thinking of where Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. There are two times, actually, when he, once when he's approaching and another when he's looking at it, he weeps over Jerusalem. And in the one section says, How often I would have called you to myself as a hen gathers her brood, but you would not. And so God takes no joy, in fact, just the opposite. Jesus has great sorrow over the inhabitants of Jerusalem who, for the most part, there were exceptions, the most part, rejected him. Except for guys like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea and some others, but by and large, reject him. And there is a judgment that is going to come. And just as there is a judgment that is going to come for the temple and for Jerusalem, there is ultimately a judgment ahead for all who reject God's Messiah. Okay? And on the other hand, there is great joy ahead for all of us. We didn't get there, but uh, on that day when he comes, Jesus says to his uh, followers, uh, sit up and take note. The end is near. And it's not in sorrow. It's the, the difference that we will have as Christians on that day versus those who have rejected God's Savior. Okay? And uh, you'll get into that next week as uh, we'll start uh, talking about the coming of the Son of Man. And that's what he does for the rest of chapter 20, or 21, rather. And then chapter 22, things really kick into gear as we see the betrayal of Judas Iscariot betraying Jesus. And we're going to see uh, the steps that lead directly then to the crucifixion. Okay? All right, let's close then with the benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God 
and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. All right, thank you.